Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, a podcast brought to you by the Learn Behavioral Network, a leading provider in ABA services all across the country. I'm your host for this week, Richie Plush, and I hope you all had a safe and wonderful holiday season and are excited for all the things that are gonna come in 2021. This week, we had an opportunity to sit down with Dr. Barry Prezant. Some of you may be familiar with his work from the CERTS model, but I was personally excited to chat with him about the work he's doing using theater as a teaching tool for individuals with autism. This has been a personal endeavor of mine for a while, and I was eager to hear about the successes that he's been having and see if there's more I can incorporate in my personal practice. Dr. Barry Prezant is also the author of Uniquely Human, A Different Way of Seeing Autism. He is a speech pathologist with close to 50 years experience and a researcher and international consultant. He's a visiting scholar at Brown University and director of the Childhood Community Services. His publications include the CERTS model, which I mentioned, four books and over a hundred scholarly chapters and articles. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Barry Prezant. Barry, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's great to have you on. It's my pleasure to be with you. So can you tell us a little bit about you and your work that you've had so far in your career? Sure, yeah, I'm a speech language pathologist by training and I got my start very, very early. I got my start um, as a teenager uh, working in summer camps for people with disabilities in the late 60s, early 70s. And I'm very grateful that that was my start because it enabled me to experience um, living with, having fun with, taking care of uh, adults and children with various disabilities um, before I hit the literature and before I went on to college and focused on that more. Uh, and fast forward, um, I uh, established specialties in autism um, in a number of universities, both master's and doctoral level programs. Um, I actually did my master's thesis and doctoral dissertation on autism in the 70s. Um, and you know, despite what people say, yes, there were children diagnosed with autism then. And also it was not the dark, bleak kind of dark ages of autism. I actually worked in a wonderful program um, at Buffalo Children's Hospital at that time. Uh, and I've, I've worn a lot of hats. I've, I've uh, worked uh, at the Brown Medical School. I was recruited to develop a communication disorders department at Bradley Hospital. Um, actually, it was the first Department of Communication Disorders in a psychiatric hospital in the world at that time. Uh, I was still very, very young. Um, and I've been in, let's see, some other university departments. I've been in private practice for more than 20 years. And a couple of other things I think are important. Um, even with my full-time university and hospital appointments, I've always tried to stay connected to families and people with autism, and I still do. I consult to a number of agencies, a number of schools. Um, and in addition to that, uh, my wife, who's a clinical psychologist, she's affiliated with uh, the Harvard Medical School. Mm -hmm. um, we've been doing a parent retreat weekend for 25 years, um, right. along with a local family support agency that was founded and is run by parent professionals. And that's been a very important part of my life. And more recently, um, getting more into the performing arts. And I hope we have a chance to discuss that. Yeah, we'll, we will certainly get there. Um, but before we get there, I wanna talk about the CERTS model a little bit. 
as an evidence-based approach. Can you tell us about that and, and, and just some more information about it? Yeah, the, the CERTS model, when people say, how did this CERTS model develop? How far back does it go? Our manuals, which are quite comprehensive, our two manuals are almost 800 pages of information. They were published in 2006, but you can actually trace the roots of CERTS back to my doctoral dissertation in the 70s. Um, one of the collaborators in the CERTS model, Dr. Amy Weatherby, who's at Florida State University. She's a distinguished researcher. Um, back to her dissertation in the early 80s. Um, and uh, through literally dozens of publications in the handbooks on autism and peer-reviewed journals, um, we addressed a number of different areas, such as the analysis of communicative intent of people with autism. Certainly, I did work in echolalia for years. Um, we did a lot of work in looking at the functions of problem behavior. Um, and we eventually brought this all together into this uh, model that we call the CERTS model, which focuses on what we believe are the most important areas for any person, young child, adolescent, adult, non-speaking, quite verbal individual with autism. Um, and that is social communication, that's the SC. The ER is emotional regulation and the TS is transactional support. Uh, and I could expand just a little bit briefly. Um, we've known for years that social communication was considered to be not only one of the greatest challenges in autism, going back to Leo Connor in 43, but we also know that progress in social communication is one of the best predictors of more positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. That when we look at the trajectory of progress in social communication, that lets us know how that child or that individual, probably one of the most robust factors, will be doing years down the line. The ER, um, we introduced the notion of emotional regulation actually in some publications prior to the CERTS model in um, articles we published in the, in the 90s. It comes out of the developmental research, both in occupational therapy as well as the infant research. Um, and I had the great chance to um, learn from and work a little bit with T. Barry Brazelton, um, who passed away at 99 years uh, of age a few years ago, who um, probably one of the foremost developmental pediatricians in the history of developmental pediatrics. And a lot of the work in emotional regulation, we pulled into autism from there. And what does that mean? Emotional regulation has to do with all the things that human beings must do to be, and we use this phrase, to be most available for learning, mm -hmm. be most available for engaging. And also when we work at the level of emotional regulation, um, we are working on preventing problem behavior because most problematic behavior occurs when a person is emotionally or physiologically dysregulated. Um, and finally, transactional support is something we all do all of the ways we support families, all of the ways we support children and autistic individuals. Um, and we have this broken down into a detailed curriculum. Um, and there are many studies now supporting the efficacy of certs from around the world actually, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I you know, I'm hearing that the social communication piece is, is the most important and I think it really stands out. You know, this is the something that 
I've certainly seen individuals struggle with the most, and it's such a hard, it's such a hard set of skills to teach, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's really challenging for some of our uh, individuals with autism to understand what's going on, you know, from another person's perspective, be able to communicate in a way that's productive and socially appropriate. Uh, there's so many nuances that go on in social communication. It, it's not surprising to me to hear that it's the most important uh, and it's the, the biggest indicator of success long-term. Yes, and, and we like to just, uh, consistent with what you just said, we like to say, you know, we put a lot of eggs in the basket of social communication because you get more bang for your buck, okay? So sorry for the mixed metaphors there, but, uh, great. Uh, great. you know, it, when, when we see progress in social communication, we see better relationships with peers. It's a high priority area for parents and a lot of research demonstrates that when parents express their major concerns, it has to do with their child or their family member communicating with them, but also their ability to communicate with their child and family member. It forms the basis of trusting relationships with other people. When you could communicate effectively with other people and they understand, you could meet each other's needs. It supports emotional regulation. It supports play development. Um, It supports academic learning in a classroom. I mean, just to know, to raise your hand, to get the teacher's attention and not blurt out a response, that's social communication. So on all, and and it's a big, big factor in employment. You know, to be a, a desirable colleague in an employment setting, that depends upon your social communication skills. And just one other quick point about this, and I'm not talking about sophistication of language. That's a part of social communication. It's not just making longer sentences or more grammatically complex sentences. Because we know, we all know people on the spectrum who can speak very fluently in very grammatically complex ways, but have problems carrying on a simple conversation with people. Right. Um, So it has to do with engagement. How well are you able to engage with another person express your emotions, express your observations, get to know that other person, share information, share common interests and feel connected. Yeah, and and something you just described triggered a a thought in my head of, you know, social, social communication is not just with your peers or with your family members, it's also with people of different, um, I don't know, standing in the community, right? So you have to be socially appropriate when you're communicating to, I'm trying to think of a, a way to say it, like higher status, I guess, right? So when you're communicating to people of higher status or lower status or the same level or whatever it may be, there are lots of different ways you need to communicate and lots of different things you need to, to do to be appropriate, r- regardless of whether it's a classroom, a library, a, a beach, there's, there's social nuances to all of those, all of those settings. Absolutely. And, and when there are communication breakdowns, um, I hate to give this example, but the very, very sad, tragic examples are police in some cases stopping people with autism. Um, uh, I actually, I can't give specifics, but um, I've been asked to be somewhat involved in a situation where uh, an autistic man started responding with echolalia because he was so anxious and so nervous to a policeman. Um, And it ended, ended up being a total misunderstanding even asking a person to stop, turn around, don't run, and an autistic person doesn't have the ability to talk back in a way that they can provide information, it's, it's resulted in deaths of autistic people. So it's, I mean, there's some very sad consequences um, with people, especially people who have to determine 
you know, what's going on? Is this person doing something that's unsafe? Do I feel threatened? Um, and that's, of course, is a huge, the positive point is, that's a huge issue in terms of all the first responder training that has begun over the last decade or so in autism. Great, it's great. You know, I, one of the things I really appreciate about the autism community is that we, we tend to recognize a problem and then try to address it. And, and a lot of the ways we try to address it is through education. And it's not just education of ourselves and those in the community, it's those around us, those surrounding the community, those that are, you know, the, the general community helpers, the general people in the store, the general populace, if you will. I think that's so beneficial and, and it helps them understand what goes on within the autism community, but also gives us an opportunity to, to bring more individuals into those environments. Yes, and, and very often it's parents or family members that are the instigators of those right. needs for training. So right. Dennis Dubow, who's done probably one of the first people to do, you know, set up a program for first responder training for policemen, for firemen, um, he has a son on the spectrum. Uh, and I know a lot of people locally who are very involved and it, it comes out of their expertise for what they do in their lives, but the fact they have a family member on the spectrum. So this, uh, this, this emphasis on social communication, is that what brought you to the world of performing arts and expressive arts? Is that, is that the bridge between the work you've done versus the work you're doing now? Uh, it's, it's one of the things, yes. Um, and you had mentioned um, Elaine Hall on our most recent podcast, which I'm going to plug soon. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Elaine, I, I met Elaine Hall and got involved in the Miracle Project um, 12, 14 years ago. I'm on their advisory board right now. Miracle Project is an expressive arts, theater, performing arts program out of Los Angeles. Um, but Elaine does trainings internationally um, and we have replicated the Miracle Project at Brown University on the other side of the country from LA um, here in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, and uh, I am, I guess you could say a performer. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a drummer and percussionist. I played in bands my whole life. And I always wanted to get some kind of link. And even though I could do fun things in my consultation and some small little bits of music with kids on the spectrum, um, I wanted to be involved in, in a much more comprehensive way. Uh, and the Miracle Project kind of vaulted me into that uh, and getting to know Elaine is a very, very dear friend right now. Um, and uh, I'm involved with a few of their programs. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, we're working on some programs collaboratively now. Um, and so that was a big piece of it. Um, a few years ago here, um, I got asked to be involved in a local group called the Spectrum Theater Ensemble, which is co-founded by adults on the spectrum, some of whom actually have formal training in theater. Um, and so that's been very, very exciting. And I, I've always thought that, you know, there's so much opportunity um, in the performing and expressive arts, because so much of what goes on has to do with social communication, mm -hmm. has to do with reciprocity and human interaction in a less challenging, threatening way, if you will, and a more fun way in right. many cases. Um, and there's literally, as you know, there's been an explosion um, at universities and community agencies about taking advantage of all the opportunities. And we actually wrote, uh, along with a colleague of mine, um, Anna Zembo, we have an article in press on autism and the performing and expressive arts and why the performing and expressive arts 
addresses many of the core challenges that experienced by autistic people. So uh, that, that's the first piece. I mean, I, I, I wrote a short two-part article on music and autism a number of years ago, but now we're really trying to get information out. I think that's so fantastic. I mean, I, it's something that I personally, for me, I have an investment in because, you know, I, I don't see clients too often anymore, but I do teach social skills through improvised theater um, yes. for some teenagers and young adults. And, and the thing that we're always trying to work on is, you know, the things that make you a good performer on stage are the things that make you a good social communicator, right? If you're listening and attending and orienting to the person on stage, that's going to be so beneficial to you in a real life conversation at the grocery store, at dinner, at wherever else it may be. And so it's, it's a fun way to explore some of those dynamics and some of those communication opportunities, but then they also generalize really well to the, to the general community. It's so true. And, and, you know, I think the bigger picture is that it shatters a lot of the myths about autism, hmm. uh, that autistic people can't be creative. You know, autistic people can't show imagination. Um, it's quite amazing. Um, let me just mention the Miracle Project. Uh, Elaine has something like 11 different classes going on simultaneously wow. with abilities of all abilities. Um, and the group I'm working with now is what she calls the company class. And they have done major productions in, in, in theaters in Los Angeles. Um, and they write the scripts. They often write the music. They write the lyrics to the music. Um, and uh, it's amazing. Um, every Monday night, I'm part of this, I'm sorry, Tuesday, I'm part of this company class and just seeing these teens and young adults come up with these incredibly creative ideas. And it's fun and it's non-threatening and it's creating a safe place where they could be who they want to be. Um, and that's very exciting. How does that impact the families, the families around those individuals? I imagine that has a drastic impact for them to be able to see their sons and daughters, you know, in a new light and in a new way and, and in some ways performing in front of an audience. I mean, how does that impact the, the parents and the families? Yeah. Well, if you want to kind of see it directly right away, you should see the film Autism the Musical, which came out 10 years ago or so, 12 years ago. And it's basically the story of Elaine Hall following six kids. And they show a lot of the family reactions. Um, and that was on HBO. It won two Emmy Awards. And they just did Autism the Sequel. They followed five or six of the participants 10 years later in terms of what they're doing. And that was on HBO and still is. Um, just, it was released a few months ago, as a matter of fact. I could tell you from my experience with the Miracle Project New England, we call it TMP. -N -E. <laughs> uh, and just seeing parents, some of whom I've known for years, some of whom I don't know at all, seeing their children perform. It could be anything from dance to, you know, and of course we had shows pre-COVID, and now we're continuing on Zoom, um, and as Elaine is out in LA, uh, and just parents saying, I never dreamed I would see my son or daughter do this, and to see the tears of joy, and yeah. to see how it opens up, and the friendships that develop by having this shared experience of creativity. It, it's really wonderful. It is. And, and um, parents, you know, when they can, if they can, get involved in various ways as well. Um, and it just, it allows them to see their son or daughter in a way that they never thought was possible before. Right. 
I also think uh, to that point, it allows the individual to see themselves in a way that they haven't seen themselves before, right? To be able to come up with an idea, put it on paper or, or communicate it in some type of way, perform it in some type of way, to be a part of that. I mean, the confidence that comes along with something like that, to be able to start a project and finish a project of that magnitude. I think that's, a, that's an incredible shift for the individuals, I would imagine as well. Absolutely, I mean, you just hit that point spot on. So much of about it is self-confidence, self-esteem, but also processing issues and problems because in the development of a play, there may be issues coming up, whether it's anxiety, you know, whether it's social confusion, what it might be. And in putting together a performance, putting together a script, a whole group of individuals on the spectrum have a chance to talk to each other, especially for those individuals who have much more sophisticated language. But it, it, it's about let's solve problems together. And again, going back to this safe community that I could talk about these things with other you know, friends of mine, and it's about solving problems that will result in a creative endeavor, in a performance. So um, there, I mean, uh, Elaine Hall tells the best stories about this. There's a, a young woman named Spencer, who um, I've met a few times, and she could hardly initiate communication due to anxiety. And then as Elaine says, one day as they were developing a play, she opened her mouth and opera came out. <laughs> and wow. she sings beautifully and she actually performed at one of the um, autism, World Autism Awareness Days at the United Nations a few years ago. Wow. So it, it, it gives them an opportunity, as you said, to kind of develop a different sense of self to see themselves in a way, uh, and that couldn't happen if it wasn't done in a very supportive, non-judgmental context. Um, because as you well know, many people with autism, many autistic kids are feeling like they're judged all the time, that they just can't get it right. And that's so important. You know, Is it a non-judgmental supportive context to be able to grow and then step up and express yourself in ways you've never done before? Yeah. And kudos to all those who have made the theater a welcoming place. You know, I think for a lot of a lot of students that I've seen, it's really, you know, they spend so much time uh, during the day not being successful at social communication or not being successful at this interaction or or struggling overall with emotional regulation or things like that. And so, kudos to those that have made the theater a safe, welcoming place, so that individuals can can be vulnerable, right? I mean, what you're describing is a big part of vulnerability. I'm gonna put myself out there one more time, even though I maybe have not been successful during the day, I'm gonna put myself out there one more time in front of this group of people and it's gonna be welcomed and supported and they're gonna give me coaching and guidance and, and they're gonna help me be a better version of me. Absolutely, and, and let, let me just add another dimension which I haven't even brought up yet. Both um, the Miracle Project programs as well as Spectrum Theater Ensemble, they're inclusive programs. So the Spectrum Theater Ensemble emerged out of actually one of the top repertory companies in, uh, in the country, the Trinity Rep, which is associated with Brown University in the theater department. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are so-called neurotypical co-actors yeah. involved. Um, it, all of Elaine's programs have neurotypical co-actors, you know, co-actors in the program. Yeah. So it's inclusive, which changes the attitudes of some of those kids and adults. 
Um, and the ultimate goal is to educate the public. That's not the sole goal, but that's what the hope is, that people will come see these performances. Like the Spectrum Theater Ensemble did a, a full performance of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in Providence last summer. Um, they did about, I wanna say 14 performances. It won all kinds of awards in the professional theater category. Um, so all these things we never expected would happen, yeah. Yeah, it's really amazing as you're describing this, I'm, I'm you know, reading the notes about certs and how this really overlaps nicely with the social communication, the emotional regulation and the transactional support. It really is in a lot of ways, almost like an extension of that. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree with that. As a matter of fact, um, an article was published uh, in 2015 showing that uh, uh, the Miracle Project was evidence-based. It was done by a number of um, professionals on the faculty at uh, Cal State Northridge. Um, and they, they used part of the search assessment to measure progress. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and right now um, I am consulting again with one of my colleagues, Anna Zembo, to a new project that actually the program hasn't started yet, but we're developing the assessment measures for um, non-speaking people on the spectrum in the Miracle Project program. Um, and we'll be using in part CERT's measures to look at progress for non-speaking individuals who might be using augmentative communication mm -hmm. um, or other non-speech means of communication, yeah. That's incredible, what a great opportunity. I'm thinking of all the all the different individuals that I've come across in during the time that I've been doing this that that would benefit from all these all these services. It's it's fantastic that this is something that's becoming more widely available and is is something that not isn't just available but it's also research based and and there's evidence behind it. And it's viewed seriously. I mean, you know, I this is my 50th year in the field. I go back a little bit. And if you would have said Oh, music with kids with autism, oh, theater with autistic kids, you know, even 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, people would have said, oh, that's nice. They can have fun. Right. You know, and in this article that we just wrote, which will be coming out, hopefully it's delayed due to COVID, um, but I could share it with you ahead of time if you're interested. Of course um, yeah. we, we document what theater can address that has been pointed out as major challenges for people on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And this is measurable. <laughs> in terms of the progress that, that's being made. So it doesn't just have to be what we have formally thought about as therapy in the past or educational training in the past. Now it's opening up to all kinds of other opportunities. Yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the conversations that I've been having pretty regularly. We started our program about three years ago and the conversation is always comes down to legitimacy. We want to prove that there's legitimacy behind what we're doing, that it's not just us putting kids on stage and saying, all right, go have fun and enjoy yourselves. It's more than that. And it's all the things that you're describing. Um, it's really inspiring for me personally to hear that there's more people doing exactly what we're doing and, and have reached a much further, uh, a, a wider base than we have so far. But it's nice to know that there is research around around this and that there is more coming, right? That the, this is not going to be like, all right, great, here, we've got this one article, great, nice, moving on. It's, no, there's a lot more depth to it than that. No, no, th there's an explosion. Um, a lot of, well, I think it goes along with um, a topic that would be interesting to chat about a little bit, and that is the whole neurodiversity movement. Um, and so, you know, once you start talking about 
we're not, we're not looking at autism as a list of deficits. We're looking at a different learning style, different modalities of teaching. That opens up people's minds to bring artists in, you know, whether they're visual artists and, and, and people I've known, and, and I'm talking about individuals who I knew when they were three or four and they're in their thirties now, um, who have become artists in music. Like Matt Savage, for example, I don't know if you know Matt, uh, Matt's in his mid-20s, he's an internationally known jazz pianist. I know Matt since he was nine or 10. And he studied people in music were brought into his life. And then eventually he got degrees from top music schools. So I always like to make the point that when we see those seeds of talent or of interest or of artistic ability, they have to be nurtured. They don't just develop and then they're there magically. Um, yes, we know people on the spectrum might have perfect pitch. Or we know that people on the spectrum might have some splinter skills, but in terms of it to be becoming something that really entitles a person to say, I am an artist, there's right. a lot of hard work that goes into it, but you have to build upon those seeds and not just say, oh, isn't that interesting? He makes nice cartoon characters. Right, uh, right. I mean, a young man I know who made nice cartoon characters or drew cartoon characters before he could speak, now is a talented artist and, and his art is displayed and sells through a major gallery in New York City. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So, so you brought up the neurodiversity movement. Let's talk about that. What, what can you tell us about that for our audience that's not familiar with it? Can you give us a little more context? Sure. Yeah. And that relates closely to, to my book, Uniquely Human, A Different Way of Seeing Autism, um, which has been out five years now. Uh, the neurodiversity movement, it, it, it's actually quite simple. And I had the opportunity, oh, three years ago, to meet the person who coined the term. This was in a, a, a conference in Australia, in Sydney, Australia, a woman named Judy Singer, um, who happens to be on the spectrum. Uh, and she did a, a, a social work master's thesis that came out in, I wanna say 1998. And she said, everybody has different brains, okay? And if you have diff a different brain than the next person and your brain is wired differently than other people, then your experience in life is gonna be different than the next person. Mm. That includes your sensory experience, that includes your emotional experience, your social experience, your cognitive experience. And so basically the neurodiversity movement is based upon the fact that different brains create different experiences. When we reach the point that a person functions outside of the bell curve um, and you know, people are still trying to come to terms with the right terminology. Right. So, um, these people might be, I, I like to say we're all neurodiverse for the reasons I just mentioned. Yeah. But some people are neurodivergent, meaning that they're on different ends of the bell curve. So people um, on the spectrum have peaks and valleys in many cases of ability. And the difficulties, and this is why we developed the CERTS model, the greatest challenges are in social communication and emotional regulation. Mm. Um, we don't feel it's fully, especially the emotional regulation piece, we don't feel is fully represented in DSM diagnostic criteria. Um, and we feel that needs to be the case. So neurodiversity has to do with not just simply, and this is a term that I think I developed, not simply pathologizing those differences but understanding those differences as human differences. Mm. So we don't talk about autistic behaviors. We talk about human behaviors. We are not minimizing or dismissing the challenges 
that some of those differences may present for the autistic individual or for parents or teachers or therapists. So um, the neurodiversity movement is everybody has different learning styles. Everybody has different strengths, different needs, different challenges. And that's another thing people don't, uh, I was just on a call the other day, we were talking about the difference between the term weaknesses versus challenges. Mm -hmm. um, and weaknesses sound like, okay, cast in concrete, it's there, you can't do anything about it. Right. Challenges is you can overcome and compensate to some degree. So what might be a challenge may not be a challenge next week um, if you get the proper support and you could overcome it. So that's what the neurodiversity movement is about. Um, and it is about, let me shamelessly tie this back to my book, Uniquely Human. Yeah. And that is, let's move away from pathologizing. If we want society, people who don't know people on the spectrum to kind of embrace them and, and see them as people, and that is a bunch of deficits, then what we need to do is to really emphasize that everybody learns differently. Everybody can cope in some situations, can't cope in other situations, okay? Um, and when we fall outside of this bell curve in our society, in our culture, we've determined that, okay, we're gonna label these differences as condition, well, not even conditions, but pathological disturbances, okay? Um, What's really interesting is as this movement develops, there's a big debate about, you know, what falls under this category of neurodiversity, all right? So for example, um, do mental illnesses, chronic depression fall under that category? Well, now we know, you know, depression is due to brain differences and depression is due to neurochemical differences. So I'm not saying there's any answers, but I will say this, and if you're familiar with the book Neurotribes, um, just an incredible book, um, came out right, right around the same time as my book. And the author, Steve Silberman and I have become very good friends in this process because our books are kind of seen as companion books. Um, and the full title is Neurotribes, um, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. Um, Award-winning, best-selling international book, um, New York Times bestseller. And that really launched autism center stage in the neurodiversity movement. So when you talk about neurodiversity, the great majority of people initially, and still to some extent, come from the autism world. But now, so ADHD, right. uh, people with all kinds of learning disabilities, learning disabilities, intellectual disabilities have kind of adopted the neurodiversity framework because many people see it as more respectful. And I would say more accurate in some cases. Yeah, I, I mean, as you're describing it, I'm thinking about where I fit in that and, and my strengths versus challenges, right? And, and how, that, how that impacts all of us and the differences I have between not just the people in my community, but also my siblings. And what's, you know, there's so many, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around all of it from the neurodiversity perspective. It's, it's really, um, it's broad, but I think it's very inclusive in a lot of ways. Yes, and, and what I like about it, and this actually goes back to my doctoral dissertation, which I did on examining echolalia um, and videotape analysis over a year in a, in a bunch of children. And at the time, echolalia was considered meaningless parroting, was considered psychotic speech. Those are quotes mm -hmm. uh, from some of the top researchers at the time. Um, and I came into the field 
um, with an undergraduate degree uh, in psycholinguistics. So I had the skills to analyze verbal and nonverbal behavior, um, the functions of communication long before we did functional behavioral assessments. <laughs> we look at it differently. We look at it from a developmental perspective. This was, my dissertation was in the mid seventies. And we found that there were many different forms of echolalia. And in some cases, kids echoed and they understood what they were saying. Um, but the bottom line is that I just kind of realized not so long ago, 20 years before the term neurodiversity was coined, this was a study that was a neurodiversity study mm. because I looked at and I found in the literature on language development in typical kids that there were kids, we, we know some kids repeat speech, but there are very few typical kids who are primarily echolalic. They, they repeat speech a ton, okay? And I found some parallels between typically developing children, some typically developing children, kids with autism. And I'm saying, wait a second, this isn't just bizarre pathological behavior. This is on a continuum of language development in all children, but an extreme end of the continuum, yeah. an extreme end. Um, and as I like to say, we can relate this to sensory, so many issues. We can relate this to sensory issues. So for example, my wife and my son are extremely hypersensitive to smell. And we could walk into a place and they go, oh, it stinks in here, let's get out of here. And I walk in and say, well, I smell that, but it's not so bad. Right. Some people are extremely sensitive to touch. So when we see hypersensitivities in autism, is that pathology or is that just an extreme expression due to neurological differences? Mm. Let me give you one more example, which is probably one of the most important examples. What about social behavior? Now, again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a student of child development, okay? In early research on children's social behavior, people looked very early on, six to 12 months of age, at kids who were socially extroverted, they would seek out interaction, especially toddlers. Once they got they started toddling around, that would be closer to a year to a year and a half. Okay. Yeah. And that some kids were, and the term that was used was reticent socially. They became anxious if people confronted them. They didn't know them. They were very, very attached to the mom. And mom was the security person, but they really were anxious about interacting with other people. And those socially reticent kids very often would grow up to be introverts when they were followed long-term. Mm -hmm. But then you get extrovert, extroverted kids who they just loved social interaction. Their brains would light up when people would engage them. I mean, they got high off of social engagement. And those people tend to, tend to grow up to be extroverts. Um, and, it, and, and so if you look at ASD and social anxiety, could it be that it's better understood as an expression on the extreme end of that continuum rather than, okay, well, the kid lives in a world of his own or he's not interested in social interaction, which is not true. So I think the neurodiversity um, issue can be extended to so many aspects of human behavior. Um, and what we see in autism is a particular combination that we've put in a bottle and said, when you see these, when you see the sensory issues, when you see the problems in social interaction and social communication, okay, we're gonna define that as this condition.
Right. I'm laughing as you're describing this because I'm thinking about my children. My son will talk to anyone that's walking by, anyone that will listen. He wants to tell them about the picture he drew, what he learned in school, the story he's writing. I mean, he's an open book and he's happy to talk to everyone. And my daughter is the opposite. And she'll wave, but she doesn't want to, you know, necessarily have ongoing conversations with people, except the people that she's comfortable with and familiar with. And neither one of those are bad or better or worse or and none of that. It's just, that's just, as you described, this this continuum. Absolutely. And, and I want to be clear. I always feel like I have to come back and make this point because when I give talks on uh, the themes from Uniquely Human and when the book first came out five and a half years ago, people would say to me, Barry, isn't there the danger of sugarcoating autism by just saying, you know, let's look at this from a neurodiverse perspective and let's consider this to be one end of this big continuum of humanity. And so I always go back to, it doesn't mean that it doesn't cause great distress and anxiety and problems for the person on the spectrum um, or you know, for parents or for teachers and therapists. But what, what it means is we have to kind of understand, you know, what's our starting point? Is our starting point simply that this is pathological behavior that we just have to get rid of? Or is our starting point, and this is a big theme of my book, to ask why, the deep why, what I call the deep why. Mm. Is it that the kid drops to the floor before going into the cafeteria because he's being non-compliant? Or is it that he's scared as hell because in the past he got overwhelmed by the sensory environment of the cafeteria? Can mm. we put ourselves to the extent possible in the shoes of that autistic person who's standing in front of us or child and say, is he frightened to death or is he just you know, not complying to a request that's being made of him? Um, and I, I think we have to ask that more and more. Yeah, I like that question. That's that, well, let's have true understanding before we try to change a behavior or exactly. before, we try to, before we try to adjust the environment or whatever it may be, let's truly understand what's going on or do our best to truly understand. Absolutely. And, and let me just give credit where credit's due. A lot of what I've learned have been from very good friends, colleagues, people I've published with, people I've presented with, who are on the spectrum. So my, my dear friend, Michael John Carley, author of three books on employment. He has an autobiographical book, diagnosed as an adult. He has a son on the spectrum. There's a quote from Michael that I love. And he said, the best way to help autistic individuals is for non-autistic people to change their attitudes, actions, and to provide the right support. Let's not go in and try to change the behavior of the person. Let's set the context. Let's set up the environments. Even the way we talk to a person, even right. we read that person's signals, what we refer to as signals of dysregulation and know how to help that person be less anxious or less angry or less overwhelmed in that situation. Right. You've written a variety of different things and you've mentioned your book a couple of times and I want to talk about Uniquely Human. You wrote that book in 2015. Yes. Tell us more about tell us more about the book and the thought process that went into writing it. Uh, yeah, uh, the reason I wrote the book um, was, it's actually quite simple. Um, for many, many, many years, I've been very fortunate to have worked with wonderful people, wonderful colleagues, and we have quite a long list of book chapters, publications, and so forth. But in my everyday life, um, I would love to tell stories. When I gave presentations, I would tell stories. I would come home, 
my wife would hear the stories, my son would hear the stories. Um, and they would say, especially my wife would say, you know, I learned so much about autism because even though she's a clinical psychologist, that's not her area of focus, you know, by the stories that you tell. And so I would always document the stories, write them down, have all these files of all these stories. I still do it. And she said, why don't you write a book of, why don't you write a storybook? Hmm. <laughs> and, and so uniquely, and the other piece was, um, I thought we were doing some really cool work and other people did, but it wasn't reaching parents. It wasn't reaching autistic people. Um, so I wrote a storybook that was intended to be a, men, a mainstream, easily digestible book. Um, so put together a proposal. Um, and then fortunately, a very major publisher, Simon & Schuster, said, we want to publish this book. I got some help from a dad who's a professional writer, Tom Fields Meyer. He has an autistic adult son. And what he helped me do was literally not use the jargon, make it more accessible mm. to parents and other people. Yeah. So I did it. Um, and it's been a word of mouth book. My editor said, this is going to be a word of mouth book. Um, and it has been exactly that. So after it gained some traction, after the first year or two, it's primarily been the best-selling book on Amazon and autism um, for the last three, four years. Um, and I get letters and notes, I mean, literally, from autistic adults, from grandparents, from younger autistic people, from teachers, therapists of all professions. It wasn't intentional that it would reach a very wide audience. I just wanted to make it easily readable, yeah. but it really, and, and I'm very grateful for this, it, it, it's really reached people, I mean, from high level researchers in the field of autism. I mean, you know, Geraldine Dawson, the head of the Autism Research Center at Duke, wrote a beautiful endorsement of the book. Wow. A mother in California who established the um, Ed Asner Family Autism Center, because her husband is the son of Ed Asner. Okay. She said, I have three children with autism, and this is the best book I've ever read. <laughs> no, my point is, I'm not just tooting my horn. It's reached parents in what, who we would think of in overwhelming situations. You know, I have three children on the spectrum. To people who spend most of their time doing research, um, to autistic adults, who, if you look, if you look at the comments, and you know there are three, four hundred comments on the Amazon page, to autistic adults and saying, "Barry gets us," <laughs> you know, it's like he, he kind of somehow gets our experience. Thank you. Um, and I think I'm kind of fortunate for an unfortunate reason, and that is that we still see so much doom and gloom out there in the writing. Um, and so even though. I really give examples of difficult situations. It's not just all, it's not sugarcoating. People still see it giving a positive message. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what I hope to do. Um, and it's part of my gratitude for the fact that autistic people have given me a lifelong career that I love. I mean, think of it that way. Any, you could think of it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I hadn't thought of, until you just said it, I hadn't thought of it that way, but absolutely. If it wasn't for autistic people, you know, for those of us who stay in the profession for most of our career, you know, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have careers, or at least not a career that's so gratifying and a career that helps us develop as human beings as well. Yeah. And that's why I wrote the book. 
It's amazing. And we, you know, in previous episodes, we've talked about how, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in jargon and terminology and, and, you know, this, this book calls this, this title, you know, labels this, this way, and this calls it, you know, has this name for it. But the reality is not all the parents are going to have an opportunity, parents, family members, grandparents, aunts, uncles, they're not going to have an opportunity necessarily to learn all of those terms, the way we use them, you know, as, as providers. Um, And so I think it's so important for us to be able to provide information for parents that's accessible to parents so that they can benefit from it. I don't need to be the smartest person in the room because I use the largest word. I want to be able to give parents tools that can help them and help their families, whether it be a stressful situation or moving into, you know, the transitioning or whatever it may be. Yes. And then, and and I think in a sense, that's the reason why families have embraced uniquely human. And now just to do another shameless plug, are embracing our podcast. Yeah. we just completed, um, this week we're completing our seventh podcast. It comes out every other week. Um, and the reason that, and I'm hearing a lot from parents, the reason that parents like it, and the reason I think Uniquely Human has been embraced by so many, is I, it, it's so many stories of so many young children, older children, adults on the spectrum, that people always say, oh my God, you know, that was like describing what my son does in that situation. Right. So people are able to kind of really connect to the people on the spectrum they have in their lives. Um, and again, all I did was tell stories of, you know, I don't I, you know, I didn't even count them, but there are dozens and dozens of stories of different individuals in the book. Um, and, and for some reason, they, they come across as very authentic to yeah. people who have a person with autism in their life. I think that relatability is so important. You know, I think for a lot of families that I've worked with, it's their community tends to shrink, right? Uh, we had a we had a hard time at this restaurant, so we don't go there anymore. And you know, this this person that we used to be friends with, you know, we didn't get along so well after this happened. So now, so their their world is shrinking. And so a, a book like Uniquely Human that tells stories about what other families are going through, there's a lot of relatability to that. And it and it's that you know that I'm not necessarily alone in this. There are other families that are experiencing this. Not that I want, you know, not that I want them to have the same struggles I'm having, but it's nice to know that I'm not the only one that's having this challenge today. Yes, and 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 you just put your finger on the magic of our annual retreat. Um, when we go, the only professionals there are my wife and myself. It's with about 50, 60 parents. We know some of them, we don't know a lot of them. Um, different people come each year. Some people come all the time. Uh, of course, we were uh, postponed due to COVID this year, right. but come October, we'll be going. That'll be our 25th anniversary. And what you're doing is you're gathering people um, on the one hand with a lot of shared experiences. Mm-hmm. You don't need to explain yourself. You know, you, you could tell the most outrageous story of what your child did at a Home Depot, you know, while learning to be toilet trained, he sees a toilet. Right. on the floor of Home Depot when he decides to practice in that toilet. And other people would go, oh my God, I, uh, you must have been so outrageously angry or whatever. And parents of other parents of autistic kids would say, I get it, yeah, we know. Yeah. <laughs> and they might find humor in that, you know? It's, it's kind of like that shared experience and the most common reaction we get from parents who go to our retreat is, we don't have to explain ourselves here. We don't have to explain our children or a family member here. Everybody gets it. Um, and even if people have not had very similar experiences, 
there's no judgment. Right. It's all about, we're all here together as a tribe. What are like, I, as you're describing, I'm thinking of like just this weight being lifted of like, oh, I can finally relax. Like I'm around people who understand. Maybe they haven't had the exact same experience, but they understand the experience that I've been in or they've had a similar one. And they learn how to be kind and not ju non-judgmental because they've been on the receiving end almost every day of their lives of people judging them and judging their child. Yeah. So Barry, where can people find more about you, about your book and about your podcast? Okay, let's, uh, starting with me, it's uh, just my name. It's www.barryprezant.com. Okay. Um, the podcast, again, easy to remember. It, uh, our website where you can see all the archived podcasts and also sign up and join us because um, we have some fun things, become part of our family. That's www.uniquelyhuman.com. And then the CERTS model is www.uniquelyhuman.com. S-C-E-R-T-S dot com. Um, and uh, on my website, I have a lot of my publications that are free downloads. Um, and we are trying to make our podcast very interactive. So in my um, book, Uniquely Human, we talk about enthusiasms, taking advantage of a child's interests and what they love to do. And so we have just a quick example. We have what we call the enthusiasm of the week. And if people mm -hmm. submit enthusiasms about a child they work with or their child, and we pick it, they will get a copy of either my book, and I haven't even mentioned that uh, my co-host is an autistic man. He's an audio engineer, David Finch. Um, and so Dave and I choose the enthusiasm of the week and they get a signed copy of my book or Dave's book. And it's fun, it's a, a non, we, even though we talk about some technical subjects, we try to continue the conversation from the Uniquely Human book. So it's sometimes lighthearted, sometimes funny. Uh, we've interviewed Temple Grandin. We've interviewed Steve Silberman, the author of Neurotribes. Uh, we, some great interviews in the can. We interviewed Elaine Hall about Miracle Project and a lot more coming up. That's great. Well, I appreciate all the work that you've done and are continuing to do, Barry. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for joining us this week. It's been great to have you. Thank you, Rich. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Barry Prezant, and I encourage you to check out his podcast and his book. Both of the links will be in our show notes for this week's episode. The thing that stood out to me a lot this week was the work that he's doing with the Miracle Project to help shatter the myths about autism. The fact that these individuals are writing scripts for musicals, singing in front of an audience, uh, putting on a performance, shows just how much the theater community is accepting of individuals, but also shows the amount of talents that are not necessarily being seen by the individuals with autism. The other thing that really stand out to me is, and from what I've seen in my personal experience, is just the joy uh, in seeing children shine. How many parents miss out on the opportunity to get to see their sons or daughters perform or see them on a team or see them engage in something very successfully? This is such a great way for that community to be able to say, look at that, that's my son or daughter, look at those, those are my nieces and nephews, my cousins, whoever it may be. Um, so many of the students that I work with and that Barry's working with are funny and smart and engaging in ways that are often overlooked. Uh, and I just, I think we need to focus on more than just the therapy aspect of what our, what our friends and families need and just sometimes take a moment and enjoy laughing and engaging and playing in a way that we haven't been able to. What a great opportunity to just see success. And I think that's something we all could use a little bit of in 2021.
As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or other feedback, send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. And please feel free to subscribe, rate, or review us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.